There's a question in Scripture that has been asked a few times by a few very notable personnel. One of them went by the name of Nicodemus. Another, whose name we don't know, was simply referred to as the rich young ruler. How many of you can tell me what the question was? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? I would say that behind this question, behind the question, what must I do to be saved, is perhaps, not every time, but perhaps a deeper one, one that possibly permeates through our mind frequently throughout the day. And instead of just perhaps saying, what must I do to be saved, perhaps we're really asking, how little can I do and still be saved? Perhaps what really prompts this question, what must I do to be saved? Perhaps really what we're really asking is, what is the least that I can do and still be a Christian? For many of us, we want to know where the line is. How far back can I go and still be okay? And for the majority of Christianity, maybe even for the majority of us here in this room, that line is usually where we stop. As long as we've met these requirements, we term ourselves Christians. In today's message, I would like to challenge you that perhaps we've been asking the wrong question all along. Maybe it's not, what's the least I can do and still be saved? What if the question was, how much can I do because I'm saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here this evening, to, Father, hear your name be praised, to have the opportunity to speak to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak in return to us. Father, remove any distractions that are in our midst. Help us to give you our undivided attention. Father, we have all here sinned before you and before heaven. And we are not worthy to be called your daughters or your sons. But Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, will forever be worthy to be called our Savior. And so we ask that he would speak to us this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 The term Christian generally is defined as one that is a follower of Christ. A what of Christ? A follower of Christ. But to follow requires action. You know this, right? To follow requires action. There's a few things that we follow. If we, put, if we put Christ, if we put religion, if we put God to the side for just a moment, there's normally three things that people follow. One of those main things are sports teams. Now, I'm not going to ask you if you follow a sports team, but for the men, uh, it's probably a temptation at the least, if not a delight at the most. Um, I used to follow a sports team very closely. In fact, I've shared with you my testimony. Football, the actual one where you use your foot to kick a ball, um, was, was, was essentially my life before I found Jesus. And whenever I used to watch my favorite sports team play, if they won a game, I'd have a great day. And if they lost a game, I'd be depressed. Thankfully, um, since I've come to the Lord in these past eight years, uh, my team, which used to be the best... Um, is now nowhere near the best. And the Lord made it that much easier for me to just stop caring. Um, because it seemed, like, it seemed like they stopped caring as well. It was mutual. Um, so it, it's, it's worked out pretty well. It still hurts a little bit, but, but I'm getting over it. But what we often do is we follow, we follow sports teams. But you'll know if you follow a sports team, um, you might have met people, maybe you're a fan of a, of, of a specific sports team, you might have met someone and say, you know, it comes up in conversation, uh, what, what football team do you, what football team do you, do you follow? And, and for, for you guys, since you probably don't play soccer, let's, you know, what egg hand team, um, what egg hand team do you follow? And then they'll respond, and honestly, I don't know one single name of any of the teams, so I don't know what they would respond. Uh, but let's just say they responded something, 
If it was the same team as you, you'd likely, you'd likely maybe take a step into challenging them to see if they were a real follower or a real fan. You might ask them a question. You might have a little bit of trivia to see if you guys are on the same level of, uh, of followhood or fanhood. And, and if, if, if you ask them the basic question like who manages the team or who's the, who's the MVP, who's the star player, or even what area is the team from, if they didn't know the answer to that question, you'd probably think, well, they're not really a fan. They're not really a follower. Because we know, we, we, we've experienced this, that to follow requires to put effort. Effort must be put forth if you are to follow. If you follow a sports team, you have to, you know, keep up with the results of the team. You have to make sure that you know, you know, who they just played and what the score was and who they're playing next. When I followed football really closely, I could tell you every single player that was on the team. Not only that, I could tell you every number that they wore on their back. I could probably even tell you how tall some of them were down to the centimeter. And I know that maybe you don't use centimeters, but it was, still, it, was still, it was still important to me. I was like, I'm a follower. I'm invested in this team. You can't be a follower and not know anything about the team, right? Something else that we follow, politics, right? We follow politics, but, but you and I know that you can't just say, oh, I'm a liberal or I'm a Democrat because people will come and they'll say, okay, well, why? And you have to have an answer. If you just say, I'm a liberal because I'm from California, then they'll be like, okay, but, but I need more than that. Or if you say, I'm a conservative because I'm from here, then they're going to need more than that. If you're really going to align yourself with a certain political party, then you need to kind of know what are the things that they believe? What are they for? What are they against? Who's their leader? What are the chances of them winning? Right? These are the questions that you might ask because you know that to follow requires effort on your path. A lot of people today, they follow celebrities. They, they literally follow them in some cases, which is illegal. Um, but in a lot of cases, they just follow them on social media. And you keep up with everything that they do. And they'll, tell, they'll show you everything because they, because, you know, they're a product, so they just want you to buy everything that they've got and to invest in all of your time and all of your money and all of these things into them. So, so they'll let you see everything in their life and you'll follow them. You'll know that this celebrity went here and this celebrity lives over here and they're worth this amount and they're on this TV show and etc, etc, etc. If you follow them, then you're invested, right? If you follow them, you're invested. And I believe that this is really what was kind, what, what, what the early Christians had in mind. I know they weren't the ones that first called themselves Christians, followers of Christ. But I think this is what the connotation was, that, that you don't just attach yourself to the term, to the name, but you actually are following Jesus. I know where Jesus is. I know what Jesus is doing. I know what Jesus said, etc., etc. The point was to be actively involved and engaged in the ministry of Christ. Essentially, I guess, I guess the whole lesson behind that is what the Bible teaches, that faith without works is dead. You can't just say that you believe. You have to actually show. You have to actually show. Now, if you ask a Christian... You're a follower of Christ. What is it that God wants you to do? How are you to follow them? A good answer that they might give you is Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. It says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. You probably know the verse. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Now Jesus, when He came to this earth as a man, did He come to change the law? No, he didn't come to change the law. The Bible says that he came to fulfill it. But to some, to some they might say that, that things were changed because if the letter of the law wasn't, then the understanding of it definitely was. I want to take you to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21 verses 23 to 25. In the time of Christ and even before that, there was what we call the law of restitution, Exodus chapter 21. When you're there, just say, Amen. Amen. Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25, it says, And if 
any mischief follow, then thou shalt give what? Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You're going to get this even if you're not reading along. Hand for hand, foot for burning for wound for wound and stripe for stripe. This is what was called the law of restitution. It was given to deter personal offenses. It was given so that people know, knew that if they were to attack you, that they could at least expect retaliation. But it was also put in place to make sure that the retaliation was not greater than the original offense. You've played those games, I'm sure, if you don't still play them today. Sometimes we do in my family, where someone will do something, and then they'll just, they'll just hit you on the arm. And you're like, what? And then maybe in retaliation, you hit them twice. And then they're like, hey, I only hit you once. Why did you hit me twice? And then you feel like you have to then return at least one more, right? And, and it just continues. It normally continues. I don't know about your family, not about my family. It normally continues until one of us is hurt. Until one of us is rather angry and lifting the other one over our heads and shaking around the room. Um, but, but this was essentially put in place so that the retaliation would not exceed what was originally done. It's eye for an eye, okay? Not eye for right hemisphere or anything like that. It's meant, to, it's meant to keep it so that whatever you've done can be done unto you. Are you with me so far? I'll take that for a yes. And it was given, it was given to protect the rights of the innocent. Now, when Jesus came, if you've read the Bible, you know that Jesus changed everything. He came and completely reshaped the way the people of the time viewed the law of God. And it was really the law of restitution that he challenged. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. You can find it just after Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 5 and watch verse 38. Matthew 5.38, Jesus quotes what we had just read. He says in Matthew 5.38, You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and what? A tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also, and whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him too. Now, this interested me the first time I read it because I've like, I, I, my, my first thought was, I've never really heard anything this insane. Now, maybe you've grown up as a Christian, maybe you grew up reading the Bible. I certainly didn't. And so, the concept of if someone slapped me, which happened way more frequently than I would have desired. If someone slapped me, then I should simply just allow them to do it again. Just, it, 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 didn't, it didn't sit well. It didn't sit well. That if someone was to, was to slap me on one side of my face, then I should simply turn the other cheek. Now, I'd, I'd heard of the saying, but I've never actually seen anyone do it. Have you? I've never actually seen anyone do it. At least, I don't remember a time in my own life where I did it, but I dug a little deeper and found, and found perhaps why Jesus said such a thing. If anyone smacks thee on thy right cheek, if someone is to smack you on, on your right cheek, do you know what hand they would normally use? Now, unless it was, it was extreme disrespect and, and, they, and they backslapped you, which I can confirm is the worst kind of slap to receive. Um, they would, if they're going to hit you on your right cheek, they would hit you with, your, with their, their left hand because they would swing across. Now, in, in, in the culture of the time, the left hand was the dirty hand. Okay, you get, you get the connotation. The left hand was the thing that cleaned up the mess. The left side always had a kind of negative connotation. The right hand or the right side was really where you wanted to be. So, essentially what Jesus was saying is this. If you do get slapped on your right cheek... You've already been slapped by the filthy hand. In other words, you've already got the worst that you can get. Now that you've experienced this, taking it on the other side isn't going to be too much of a challenge for you. You've been pushed already. And, and he, gives, he gives a few of these truths. But I can imagine that the most annoying one was the last one that he lists. 
And whosoever, whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him too. And you might know that during the time of Christ, uh, the Roman Empire was in control. And any Jew could be compelled to serve a Roman soldier or a Roman official by carrying that soldier's burden. And the Roman law it required them, it compelled them to go 1,000 paces, also known as a Roman mile. And after that, they could just go about their distance. And Jewish historical writings state that that for many people, this was such a regular occurrence that if there was a path that stemmed from your home, that, that uh, your average Jew, the one that has been plagued constantly by the Roman soldiers, would take a flag with him and he would walk 1,000 paces, one Roman mile, and place that flag at the end of that Roman mile and leave it there because he wanted to make sure that if any other Roman soldier came, maybe the next day or the next week or the next month, and said, hey, listen, carry my burden, he knew exactly where he would have to walk to, and he would take not a single step further. This is as far as the law compels me to go, he would argue, and there he would drop the load at the soldier's feet. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew this. And so he looks at them and says, if any man compel you to go with him a mile, go with him too. And I can imagine at that time that the people began to lose their mind. They're looking for a Messiah. Listen to me. They're looking for someone that is going to set them free from the powers of the Romans. And Jesus is coming and it looks like he's almost extending their reign. It looks like he's almost making it harder for the Jews. It looks like he's making it harder for the Israelites. He's saying, if they compel you to go one mile, which I can... Can you imagine this? Can you imagine this? My family, we have a problem with timekeeping. I don't know if anyone's realized, um, but we have a problem, some people have realized, we have a problem with timekeeping. I can't imagine if we were still under this law. Imagine how late we'd be then. <laughs> Can you imagine leaving your house and, and you know that the place that you need to go, maybe you've got a business appointment or a doctor's appointment, a dentist's appointment, you've got half an hour journey and you leave, if you're like me, with about 27 minutes to make that journey. And then you get caught by a Roman soldier who wants you to walk a mile carrying his load. What an inconvenience. And Jesus comes along and says, if any man, if any Roman compels you to walk with him a mile, walk with him too. Walk with him too. Why? Why make the plight of the Hebrew harder? Why make it more challenging? I think it's because Christ knew something that perhaps the people of his time and maybe even the people of our time, maybe even ourselves, perhaps he knew something that we didn't. And that's this simple truth. That the things that we do for others are means to show them our God. The things that we do for others are means to show them our God. You see, being the second miler wasn't meant to be the exception. Christ wanted it so that it would be the norm. So that it would be the norm. He knew that the things that we do for others are means to show them our God. I want to take you to one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23. The things that we do for others are the means by which to show them the God that we believe in. 2 Samuel chapter 23. And I want you to, to look with me, if you would, at verse 8. 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 8. We're going to look at three of my favorite characters in the Bible. They were known simply as the three. They were known as the three. But before we look at before we look at just who these three were, I want you to, to imagine in your mind, I want you to imagine that one night as a child, that your mother comes to tuck you in, and she asks you if you'd like to hear a story before you go to sleep. Of course, every child, every child would say yes. And so she says, you know, the most amazing thing happened today. The most amazing thing happened today. The king was there with all of his men, and they were all ready to go to war, but none of them actually went. 
They just stayed there in their quarters. They stayed behind their walls, behind their barriers. And you know why? Because they were scared. So the child says, scared? But they're soldiers. It's the king. Scared of what? She says, of the giant. You see, the other army, the enemies of God's people, they had a giant, a really big, strong man with really big, heavy armor and a giant helmet and a huge sword. So the king and his men, they were scared. And they knew they should fight, but they, they just didn't. But you want to know what was so amazing about this story? He's like, what? Well, there was a young boy just like you. And he was, there to, he was there to bring things to his older brothers who were soldiers in the army. And, and he saw that all of them were scared. And he was like, why aren't you fighting? Aren't you the soldiers? And he was really upset with them. But he was even, he was even more upset when he heard that the giant on the other side of the fence was mocking his God. And he was so small and young, just like you. And the giant, so big and strong. And guess what happened? And the little boy says, and the giant killed him. He's like, no, actually. The little boy went out. And he took his slingshot like your one. And he picked up some stones like the ones that we have just outside. And he put one in the slingshot. And he flung it as hard as he could towards the head of the giant. And he hit the giant so hard right in the frontal lobe. Knocked him right onto the ground. And then the little boy went over and he just... And of course, then you pause the story there because it's a little boy. You don't actually want to tell him what actually happened. But you simply, hey, listen. And then he defeated the giant. He won? Yeah, he defeated the giant. And his name was David. Maybe one day you'll be like him. And with that story and the many that were to follow ringing in this young boy's ears, he grows up. And guess what he wants to be when he's older? He wants to be a soldier. And he's training, and as he's training, and as he's growing, and as he's gaining strength and wisdom in battle, he's becoming a, a mighty man of valor. He keeps hearing of the war stories of young David, who eventually becomes a young man, and who one day has his own army. Now, if you're a soldier, you're a soldier for the king. And Saul is king, so, so you're one of Saul's soldiers, but then the time comes when David has his own call for his own army. Let me ask you, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Are you going to stay loyal to the king who, who doesn't even oftentimes go to battle when he should? Or are you going to go after your idol? Are you going to go and line up to fight behind the ones whose stories you've heard all throughout your childhood? Of course, of course they end up in David's army. And these three young men, they become known as the three the three strongest men in all the land. And the Bible gives an amazing account of some of the things that they did. Look at verse 8, 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 8. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains, the same, his name was Adino. I, I think this is probably the best name in the Bible. Adino. Adino the Esnite. Listen, listen to what Adino, we'll call him Dean for short. Listen, listen to what Dean does. It says that he lift up his spear against how many people? Against 800 whom he slew at one time. Now I know that you are not soldiers. I know that you may not, you know, on your tombstone if Christ doesn't come, have engraved below your name mighty men of valor. But I think you know what a spear is, right? You guys have seen spears, long sticks, pointy end. I want you to try and imagine this. Now, I've tried time and time again, and I just can't really make sense of it in my mind, but I believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God, and so I believed it happened. I'm just going to need to see it once I get through those pearly gates on action replay. Listen to this. Dean takes it, Dino takes his spear. And it says 
that Adino lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. Now, I don't know if you've ever held a spear, but it's always a two-handed weapon unless you're going to throw it like a javelin. And if you're in a battle and that's your weapon, you don't throw it. Are you with me? You keep it. But do you know how you would kill someone with a spear? You take the spear, you point it at them, and you jab it in. Now, how do you do that to 800 people? It almost appears that Adino lined up with his spear and all 800 men stood in single file. And Adino was there and he just pierced the first, got rid of him, and then the next one lined up and then he took the next one and got rid of him and then went through 800 men. I don't know how else some one man could defeat 800 people with a spear. Can you imagine? But he did it. Edino slew 800 men with just a single spear. This is the caliber of soldier that followed after David. Look at verse 9. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. Definitely not the coolest name in the Bible. <laughs> the Ahoites, one of the three mighty men with David... When they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away, so when they ran, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. Let me say it again. And his hand clave unto the sword. I don't know if you've ever heard the word clave or cleave being used in the Bible, anyone? Maybe in the book of Genesis, maybe in Genesis chapter 2, where the man should leave his father and mother and show what? And cleave. It is this union, it is this where two become one. And Eliezer, this soldier here who it says, the Lord wrought a great victory on that day and the people returned after him only to spoil. He had a sword in his hand and he was so proficient with this sword and he was using this sword so much that him and the sword became one. He became one with his weapon. His hand clave unto the sword. It's almost as if they fused. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it's happened to me. It wasn't a sword. It was a nail gun. I was doing roofing one, one summer. It was about 110 degrees Fahrenheit. And we were working from 4 in the morning so that we could finish by lunchtime, which we rarely did. I was trying to pay my tuition, which I rarely managed to do. And I remember just being there on the roof with, with these tiles, and I had the nail gun. If you've ever done this, you know that it's not fun. You don't wake up in the morning excited to go to work. And I was just there laying the tiles. And you do that for hours and hours and hours. And then when you finished, you try and let go of the nail gun, but you can't. You can't. The nail gun has decided that it is now going to stay. And it take, I'm telling you, after three and a half months of that, and the worst thing is you can actually get the nail gun off, but then you need to go over everything that you just did with a hammer and make sure that it's nice and flat. And you hold the hammer the same way that you hold the nail gun. And so you just go around to make sure everything is nice and flat. I kid you not. By the time I reached the end of the summer, my hand stayed like this. My hand stayed like this. And I literally had to pry. I'm, I... I'm not exaggerating. There was legitimate pain as I tried to put my fingers back to the position that God had originally created them to be. But they, they, stayed, they stayed bent. It's almost as if they wanted to still hold it. I felt, and I remember reading this passage, I was like, it's almost as if this is my experience. Except my enemy is the roof. But I felt something that Eliezer felt. I felt like I had become one. I had become one with my weapon. Eliezer fought so many people with this. Listen, if there's something that I'd like to be written about me, if I die before Jesus comes, is that I use my sword so much that it never left my hand that it stayed right here. 
that I was proficient at using this weapon of choice. And that though the enemy might try, he could not pry it out of my grip. Eliezer, there's one more soldier. There's one more that makes up the three, and he might just be your favorite. Verse 11, And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite, and the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. No, you actually read that. Full of lentils and the people fled from the Philistines, but he stood in the midst of the ground and he defended it. And he slew the Philistines and the Lord wrought a great victory. Shammah, I believe, should, he should be the, the mascot of Loma Linda, if you will. He stood there and defended the vegetarian farm. He stood there and he was like, there is no one that is going to take these lentils. Now, I don't know how seriously you can take that sentence, but he took it very, very seriously. As the Philistines approached, as they approached this farm, as they approached this flock of lentils, Shammah stood there and he's like, no one's coming in. These are God's lentils. These are God's lentils. Perhaps the most extreme vegan you'll ever see in your life. But guess what? He committed to the cause. He committed to the cause. Shammah defended those lentils. And the Lord wrought a great victory. These were the three. These were the three. The famous three. David's famous three. And I want you to look just how far they went for their master. Look at verse 13. And three of the thirty chiefs went down and came to David in the harvest time unto the cave of Adullam, and the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in a hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Many scholars have looked at this passage and said, Well, when David looked and, and when David said it, that he longed, Oh, that he could have a drink from the water of Bethlehem, that he likely was just speaking to himself. He was likely there sitting in the cave, trying to flee from, from the grasp of Saul. And whilst in the cave, he couldn't help but just, but just send his mind back to the place that he knew so well, craving to be relieved of his thirst and said, oh, oh, if I could have the water from the wells of Bethlehem. The next verse is actually crazy. Verse 16, And the three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem. Listen to me. These guys were insane. You can imagine that they're just in the cave and they're probably the three that are closest to David and David's just there. Oh man, I wish. I just wish that I could have some of the water from Bethlehem. And before you know it, before you know it, Dean picks up the spear. Right? Before you know it, Shammah ties the lentils around his belt. Before you, well, Eliezer doesn't have to pick up the sword. And they head out. They head out. Listen to me. David didn't ask them to go and do anything. They were his soldiers, not his servants. If war came to David's door, then they would stand on the front line. If his life was at risk, they would throw their own in the way. But they weren't there to just wait on everything that he said, every request that he had. And in fact, this wasn't even a request. This was just his heart longing for something back home. But they just hear these words come out of his mouth. Oh, I wish I could have had some of the water from Bethlehem. And the three of them just march right into the city. Now, can you imagine the Philistines, the watchmen of the Philistines just looking out? They're just looking out and they see in the distance three tiny figures. And they're coming closer and closer and closer. And I don't know if they were just walking towards the city as the absolute bosses that they are, or they were sprinting full-blown towards it. But what I do know is that if I'm a Philistine inside the, inside the city, I'm thinking, oh, great food because we're just going to pick them off like there's no tomorrow but these three i don't know how that's what i'm saying movies just don't do it just can you i'd go and see this i'll be honest i'd go and see these three guys that are seemingly out of their mind 
They're walking towards Bethlehem, which has been seized by, by the Philistines. It's, it's a stronghold for them now. But here's the thing, they don't care. They don't, their master is thirsty. And look what it says. It says they break into the city. They break through the host of Philistines and draw well, draw water out of the well of, of Bethlehem. You can just imagine. You can just imagine that Eliezer's there at the front, just fighting off the people coming from the north. And then there's and then there's then there's Dean on the back just, just fighting those that come from the south. And then Shamar, lentils intact, in is reaching down to get to get maybe maybe just a sip. But the other two are fighting off every wave of soldier that approaches the well. And they're just there. And they pick up the water and they head out. You might think that they came to take back the city. But no, they just came for a drink. They just came because David was thirsty. And they fight their way into the city. They take the water. And then they fight their way the whole way back out. And then they get back to the cave. Bucket in tow. And drop it at the feet of David. Now you tell me. You tell me what that would do for your spirits. You tell me if you were sitting in a cave, depressed and lonely, unsure of how God was leading in your life or what it was that was going to happen in your future. You tell me if there's one thing that you longed for that you never even asked for. And these three show up and they drop the bucket at his feet and say, Master, you were thirsty. Talk about going the extra mile. Now we don't know how this action changed the course of history. We don't know exactly what would have happened differently had this not happened, but we do know David's response. We do know David's response. Look at what it says in verse 16. The second half of that. That was by the gate and they took it and they brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did the three mighty men. They fought tooth and nail with everything that they had for this water. And when they give it to David, suddenly something comes over David. No longer is his thirst the more important thing. Now, now David has been brought to a place where he wants to worship God. He wants to worship God. I spoke on Friday afternoon about presence evangelism, about trying to be a witness just from being in the very midst of people. This is true presence evangelism. We are not a witness by just doing the things that everyone else would normally do. We're a witness by going the second mile. We're a witness by doing the things that aren't required, not just the things that are. David was witnessed to by these three men. David's heart was touched. And he poured out a blessing to the Lord. And if these three, if these three men were willing to go that far for their king, how far should you and I go for ours? See, there's something that I think they realized. There's something that I think Jesus knew himself. That the things that we do for others are not just a means to show them our God, but the things that we do for others bring us closer to God too. You'll know the story of Abraham and Sarah, visited by three apparent strangers who seemed to know them very well. And when they saw these three strangers in the distance, they wasted no time in preparing a place for them. They set up the house. They got the water which didn't come from a bottle that had to be taken from a well. They got bread that they didn't just pick up from Walmart. It actually had to be baked. It had to be prepared. And then Abraham took a calf, one of his best, and had one of his servants prepare them a meal. 
Abraham waited on them. He made sure that regardless of how long they intended to stop by, regardless of whether he knew them or whether they were strangers, that if, he came, if they came into his house, that he was prepared not just to meet their needs, but to exceed their needs. Abraham and Sarah went the extra mile. And they found that this axiom was true. That when we go the extra mile for others, oftentimes it brings us even closer to God. You'll know that at the end of this story, that Abraham and Sarah receive a great blessing themselves. The news that their line will continue, that God's promise will be fulfilled. You'll know, of course, the story as well in Luke chapter 23. As the disciples, after Christ has been crucified on the cross, are walking on what we call the road to Emmaus, and they're joined by a, by a stranger, by a stranger that they don't know. And I don't know what it's like where you come from, but where I come from, we don't talk to strangers. And I don't mean that in the childish kind of way, don't talk to that person, you don't know them. But in London, we don't talk to strangers. In fact, we rarely even talk to people that we do know. But never would you find two people walking and having a conversation and then a random third anonymous person just pops in and you just invite them straight in. But these two did just that. He overhears what they're saying and they start talking to him about it. And they walk and they walk and they walk and we don't know how long the journey is but by the time they get to the end of the conversation it's night time. And they don't just say, hey, thanks for walking with us, thanks for talking with us, thanks for the insights that you might have shared. They say, hey, why don't you come in? And he's like, sure. And like, hey, we'll make you food as well. We'll do everything that we can to make sure that you feel like you're welcome. To make sure that you feel like you fit in. To make sure that you don't feel ostracized or you don't feel different. We'll make you feel like you're one of us. I mean, if that's not the message of Christianity, I don't know what is. They go the extra mile for an apparent stranger. And then they're the ones that receive the greater blessing. The Bible says, were not their hearts lit when he spoke of those things? Going the extra mile is not merely a witness to others, but oftentimes it brings us closer to God ourselves. We should go the extra mile for God. Why? Because he went the extra mile for us. Jesus went the extra mile for you. Sure, maybe you could have concocted some, some crazy plan where all you had to do was just say that you believe and then, then He'd cleanse you of your sins and take you straight to heaven. But no. Jesus knew that you and I would need an example. Jesus knew that we'd need someone to come as a man. Jesus knew that we'd need to be able to see this one and say, okay, I can relate. He has flesh, he has hands, he has, he, has, he has a figure just like me. Jesus knew that if he was really going to reach the people, he had to become like the people. I mean, if this isn't an evangelism blueprint, I don't know what is. He knew that if he really wanted to save souls, then he had to be found amongst them. The cross of Calvary is the greatest picture we've ever seen and will ever see of going the extra mile. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, hanging on the tree of Golgotha. Jesus went the extra mile for you. Jesus went the extra mile for you. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what applying this message looks like because it's difficult it's hard can you imagine can you imagine what this campus would look like if we woke up every morning and after spending time with the lord we said i'm going to go the extra mile for someone today what would it look like I mean, it's, it's not reality. It's not the world that we live in today. But what if it was? What kind of shift would we see? I mean, this place is set up for it, right? We've got Christians and we've got non-Christians. We've got believers and we've got non-believers. We've got the, those that have the message and those that, that really need to hear it. Can you imagine... 
Can you just imagine? Let's just say it was just for a single day, right? Because we like days in this kind of culture. And we have a day for this. We have, we have pancake day and we have wear your own clothes day. And we have all... Imagine we had go the extra mile day. Imagine today you had the sole objective Today, I'm going to go a little bit further for someone else. Yeah, I could walk the Roman mile. I could do exactly what's expected. But imagine if I did a little bit more. And imagine if the reason, listen to me now, imagine if the reason for doing that, for going that extra mile wasn't so that they would notice that you went the extra mile. Because is that not what we do? Right? Like the publican. We, 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 we go the extra and then we announce it. We live in a culture today, especially as young people, where we love to announce our evangelistic efforts. Today, you know, I was, I was, I was walking home and, and there was a lady and she needed help because she, you know, she couldn't get all of her shopping into to the back of the car. So I went there and I, I helped her out and you know, it, just made, it just made me feel so good and so, so grateful that God gave me that opportunity. And I really think that we should, we should do things like this. to boast about these things. Listen, it wasn't meant to be the exception. It was meant to be the norm. Going the extra mile for Jesus was the norm. We shouldn't have time to boast about these things. It should just be who we are. I don't know what this looks like. I really don't. But I want to. I want to. I want my wife to know what it's like when someone goes the extra mile for her. I want my friends to know that they have someone in their life who won't just do what they've asked, but will try and push the boat out a little bit further. I don't know what it looks like. But can you just imagine? How many people do we have in here? 200? 150? That's 150 extra miles. That's 150 extra acts of service. Now, for some of us, for some of us, it's just a struggle to do the first mile. But imagine if we could push through. Imagine if by the grace of God, when she says, honey, I need you to wash the dishes. Imagine you also wash the clothes. Ooh. <laughs> or imagine, imagine she said, hey, you need to wash the clothes. And then you wash the clothes, and then you put the clothes in the dryer. <laughs> Happy is that home. I'll just tell you, that I've experienced. I should have experienced it a lot more. I should have, I should have made the transition from washer to dryer a lot more than I have. But, but can you imagine if we just consistently went the extra mile? Imagine what kind of culture we'd have. Imagine what Christianity would look like to people. You don't know how to, how to witness to people? Go the extra mile. Listen. Listen to them. Listen to their struggles. Walk with them. Talk with them. Pay attention. Oh, they love it. We love it when people pay attention to us. I love it. Don't you love it? Word got out that for this semester, I'm, I'm sugar-free. It's been super tough. I'll just be honest. I've seen the most amazing vegan milkshakes I've ever seen in my life since I've been here. But I'm sugar-free. Word got out. And then Jai's mom's been making me sugar-free cookies every day. <laughs> Touches the heart. It makes a difference. It makes you feel like people care. Can you imagine if people felt like people cared? I've shared with you many times. People are the worst. But imagine if they were the best. Imagine if we could show people Jesus by just doing what Jesus did. Going the extra mile for others shows them the God that you believe in. Going the extra mile for others brings you closer to that God. Going the extra mile 
for others is the commission given to us by Christ as he went the extra mile for us. So I challenge you this evening. I challenge you to pay attention to those that are closest to you. I challenge you to look at this campus, to look at your classmates, to look at your workmates and your colleagues, to look at, to look at the strangers in your midst and ask one simple question. How can I go the extra mile for that person without any thought of reward? Even, catch this, even without the thought of, I'm going to go the extra mile for them in the hope that I'll be able to invite them to restoration tomorrow. Just do it. Just do it and pray that the only motivation for that would be the love that Christ himself has put in your heart. This is not something we're doing for reward. This is not something that we're doing so that we're noticed. This is not even something that we're doing for baptism. This is something that we're doing because Jesus said this is what it means to be a follower. Father in heaven, Help us, Lord, to take this charge. Help us to take this commission. Help us to break the norm. To smash through the mold. To break out of our comfort zone. Even if it's an inconvenience to us, Lord. Even if it slows us down. Even if it means that we don't get everything accomplished that we had on our list today. I pray that top of that list. That top of that list would be today I'm going to go the extra mile for someone. And they may never know my name. They may never know what church I'm from. They may never know what program I've been attending. They might, they might not even speak to me, Lord. But they might just see you. And that's all the motivation that we need, Lord. Father, you've put us on this planet to restore the brokenhearted. If this isn't the work of restoration, then Lord, I don't know what is. Help me to live this message, Lord. I don't just want to speak it. Help me to live this message with my own family. Help me to live this message with my own friends. Help me to live this message with the strangers, Lord, that I haven't even met yet. Put in my heart the desire to go the extra mile. I want to be a living witness for you, Lord, and I know that these people, my friends here, do also. Help us to take courage from these stories. That, Lord, we would live the second miler life for Jesus. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.